This podcast is brought to you by the Administrative Committee of the Presbyterian Church in America, promoting the unity, purity, and progress of the church. Learn more about the Administrative Committee and support its work by visiting PCAAC.org. Welcome to Gifts and Graces. All Christians have communion in each other's gifts and graces, says the Westminster Confession. So on this podcast, we help you and your church benefit from the gifts and graces of other parts of Christ's body. Each episode, we bring you a seminar, sermon, or discussion from church leaders across the country and around the world designed to promote the unity, purity, and progress of the church. This is Gifts and Graces. On this episode of Gifts and Graces, we get to hear from Pastor Brett Barbie as he considers the 1619 Project and critical race theory. Brett Barbie is the pastor of Strong Tower Fellowship, a PCA congregation in Macon, Georgia. This was originally recorded as a seminar delivered at the 2021 General Assembly. Let's listen as Brett Barbie explores how grace abounds. Delighted to be with you today. Uh, my wife, uh, Bartis, and I come from uh, Macon, Georgia, Strong Tower Fellowship, where we serve uh, Central Georgia Presbytery. Um, we've been in the PCA for 17 years and a teaching elder for nine years. Um, just want to say thank you to uh, the body of Christ. Thank you to all our, our faithful leaders and churches and servants uh, building us up in holy love. Uh, thank God for you. Thank you for, uh, I'm sure uh, some of you in this room likely have maybe written books about this topic or, or articles. And I, I come to you uh, by, by no means as any expert, uh, but just in hopes that the Lord would speak to our hearts and strengthen us in truth. As a dear brother once said, uh, can't say uh, everything, but at least we can say something. Amen? Amen. So we're going to uh, look at this in four, four points. Um, we're going to do a little time with background about myself and just kind of how we got to this, this place. Um, also, we're going to celebrate redemptive history, the mighty works of God and Jesus Christ. And then we're going to look at uh, CRT and the 1619 Project and uh, that's another focus on history with another aim, another priority. And then uh, let us respond together uh, in the truths of the gospel, that grace does abound. Uh, Paul says, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God, um, that we do have the joy of Christ. He's welcomed us. Uh, we're adopted through propitiation and uh, the joy of being his and our family, uh, knowing his grace before I was converted, I was, I was led to the Lord by a PCA pastor, and he lifted up to me uh, the doctrines of grace, the pursuit of God to wretched sinners. And I can remember before my conversion thinking upon some of the things he had been uh, teaching me about the Holy Spirit, how the Holy Spirit pursues sinners. And uh, as I was dead in sin, my sin manifested itself in a lot of ways, but primarily in drug addiction. And I can remember being in one of my dealer's houses thinking about the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit would desire me, would, would call me, and, and he did. He called me to himself, called me into ministry. Uh, 
I've been able to, to serve in the PCA with cross-cultural church planning and renewal in South Carolina and Georgia. Um, joy to see the Lord work and uh, to, to enter into diverse neighborhoods, diverse communities. Um, this is from this past fall, Strong Tower Fellowship particularizing for our presbytery and uh, so thankful to serve this little flock, uh, the kingdom breaking in. It's like a, like a mustard seed, but it's spreading and growing and as we've had the joy of serving and uh, serving in the PCA, and as we're all seeking to be faithful to the Scriptures, true to the Reformed faith, and obedient to the Great Commission, um, as we've seen uh, the Lord unify people through the Gospel. This is, this is our core commitment, and, and our family entering into the PCA really seeing a momentum, a momentum in the truth that Jesus is building His church, that, that we enter in upon blood-bought ground of cross-cultural mission, and, and to see our denomination, the leaders, uh, to see an intentionality, uh, a vulnerability, a hope, going after our neighbors, going, going after our neighbors with the truth. And so it's been so exciting to see. But also, as we know, this past, you know, alongside the momentum of the church, there's been, you know, just these past years with fury and uh, the flood of violence, suffering, such heartbreak and loss. Um, it's like wave after wave um, where the media puts before us these high-profile cases and, and crimes. And um, there's such racial division. Uh, there's riots. We, we've seen revolts, um, calls to defund the police. We've seen the, the rise of Black Lives Matter uh, and just a mess of politics. I mean, we got it. we've been dealing with all of it. And, uh, but how, how we've experienced hurt and the frustration of these days, and we felt the pressure to respond. How, how do we respond and even uh, this pressure to even self-protect? Uh, we've seen that with corporations, uh, with the rise of the cancel culture. No doubt you've seen it, and even, you know, after some events, you get a, a notification from Uber or Amazon. This is what we're doing for racial justice. This is what we're doing to diversify our leadership. We're going to do diversity trainings. Um, and ironically, seeing that uh, similar time from the church, uh, ministries, even ministries that some of us might consider have been flagship and leading the way in cross-cultural ministry, this uh, response to say, well, we, we need to do more uh, uh, to fight against racism. We, we haven't been doing enough for justice. Uh, we haven't been doing enough for black communities. Uh, we haven't been committed to diverse leadership. And so seeing a resounding, we got to do more, we can do better. Um, or even seeing our, some of our leaders adopting cultural liturgy to try to connect and describe, well, what's the problem with the church? Well, the problem with the church is, is whiteness or white supremacy. And, and we need to be caught up in anti-racist uh, movements. And so all of us, as we've been feeling the pressure thinking, how, how do we respond? And even in our responses that we would ask our, our hearts and search our hearts, are we seeking to please Jesus Christ? Or are we seeking to please men? And so we ha you have this kind of comparing and contrasting conviction and culture. And uh, church, we celebrate conviction that, that it is true. Men are dying to sin. Men are dying to sin and they're rising to new life, to, to walk out righteousness. Uh, men are coming under the authority of Scripture, God's standard, God's truth, and, and bearing the fruit 
of, of justice, the fruit of righteousness, uh, gospel mission. And we celebrate the conviction of the Holy Spirit, the power of grace, and the fruit of conviction, which Paul says is righteousness, peace, and joy. We see that, and we've experienced that, and we, we look for that. But then, you know, comparing coming under the pressure of the culture, uh, what, what is the culture's aims and ends? Uh, I was reminded of the story, the Greek story of Sisyphus, um, where Sisyphus was damned uh, to, to torment because of his trickery, and he was condemned to a life of hell of having to roll up a giant stone up a, up a hill, and every time Sisyphus would get to the top because the stone was enchanted, it would roll away from him and roll back down to the bottom. And so all Sisyphus could do would, would be walk down to the bottom of the hill and his demise, and we're going to try it again. I'm going to do better this time. And coming under the weight, and we compare that to the pressure of the culture and what we need to do and how we need to respond, that pressure has put some in a place of perpetual guilt. A perpetual guilt and a place of, of seeking to atone for sins with penance, with works, uh, feeling this pressure, can we, can we ever do enough? Can we ever find forgiveness? Or, or this pressure, this, this giant stone upon us uh, has put some in a, a place of perpetual victimhood. Uh, this, this life of, of paranoia, always being on the lookout. Someone's trying to hold me back. Someone's out to get me. And then the fruit of the pressure of the culture, uh, this, this irreconcilable division, uh, the works of pride and, and malice, self-righteousness, condemnation. But that you and I, we would remember the words of Paul to the Galatians. He said, church, you're running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Who hindered you? Who, who's getting in your way? You're, you're running well. Obeying the truth, the truth which sets us free. The truth that, that makes everything fit. Our, our identity, our purpose, our place in this world. We hit the ground running in joy in the presence of God, being loved by Him, being equipped by Him. And uh, so who hindered you? And this, this truth the church has been given, uh, it, just, it just fits. It fits with reality, what Her Herman Bobink said. Christianity and the meaning of reality belong together like lock and key. They make sense together. And so Scripture, redemptive history, is leading us to come under the story that is governing the world. Uh, where atheists and materialists, they say there is no story. There's no aim. There's, there's no purpose. It's an accident. Here we are. Tough. Too bad you hurt. Why do you care? It's an accident. Or progressives want to say, you know, man's writing the story. Man's ushering the events of history to meet his end or his design. But we, as Christians, we live by the truth. We live by the truth, what Schaefer says. God is, is here and he's not silent. We live by the truth and this, this Christian worldview and, and looking at, at the world through redemptive history, uh, that we have God's great story, a story of creation, sad story of a fall, but a joyful story of redemption in Jesus Christ and the hope of glory, a consummation. This is redemptive history, and so we... God's calling us, and we're calling our neighbors, find your place in this story. Find your place here. Um, this is the way we can see the world. 
This is the way we interpret what's going on. And specifically, when we think about when we see acts of violence and malice and hatred and cruelty, and we see suffering and trouble and misery, and like, how, how do we respond to that? What are we supposed to see? Well, Jesus says that we are to see these things upon the, the world and that these things are witnesses to us. That they're teaching us something. Uh, you remember in Luke 13 when a, a crowd came to Jesus? They said, Jesus, this horrible thing happened. Pilate, he massacred these people, these worshipers, these Galileans, and he mixed their blood with their sacrifices. You know, surely they've, they've suffered some of the judgment you're preaching. Surely that's happened to them because they're worse than us. Surely uh, judgment and suffering only happens to certain types of people. But Jesus says, no. He says, when you see suffering and violence and trouble and, mi and misery, preach to yourself, ask yourself. He says, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So what, what is Jesus saying? He's teaching us that, that no one is innocent and no one segregated from judgment. That when we see suffering and misery and trouble, these things are witnesses to us. These things are the effects of man's broken relationship with God. That's what we learn. That's what we see. We have a solidarity in Adam. As Paul says in Romans 5, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. That, that as Jesus is preaching about uh, what's going on in the world, but he's, he's here, he, he's there, he's, he's teaching. He's proclaiming the gospel, the, the, the good news of the person and, and work of Jesus Christ. And he's calling men to himself. He's saying, if you're afraid, you don't feel safe. Well, where you're not secure, you need to turn to me. You need to worship me and receive me. And, and he's preaching about repentance and salvation and forgiveness in his name. And then he's doing mighty works, which attest to his message. He's confirming to us who he is, his identity, his power, and his mission. And how he said he set his face like a flint to Jerusalem, where he was going to lay down his life, he was going to be lifted up, and then when he's lifted up, he's going to draw all men to himself. That Jesus, he went to the cross, came under the curse, came under darkness for sinners, made propitiation, he satisfied God's justice, quenched God's wrath. Man and God are no longer enemies. There's peace. Where there was a broken covenant, now there's a new covenant in the blood of Jesus Christ. It's a message to the world. What Paul says in Romans 5, 17, For if because of one man's trespass death reigned, through that one man much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. He says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners." So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. He says, now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So Paul is leveling all of us. So where, where Adam broke covenant and death reigned and death spread to all, Christ has come fulfilled all righteousness, 
the blood of the new covenant, and now for life is spread. Life reigns. Um, it's triumph of, of grace in Jesus Christ. Uh, Charles Hodge, he says, no system in all of history has produced this peace. That salvation has begun on earth. And so, so church, as, uh, this, is, this is the system that rules and reigns in the world. The life and the reign of Jesus Christ. Not white supremacy. Not some oppressive world system. Jesus reigns. Grace reigns. He is triumphed. And because this is true, Paul says, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. This is our, our hope. This is our message. And, and as Christians, uh, the, the challenges that we face, we're called to appropriate this gospel to all our challenges. This, this truth, this is what's happened. This is where things are headed. What are we going to believe? Are we going to believe God? Or are we going to believe, believe man? And so to help us believe God, we need the scriptures. We want a high view of the means of grace. Peter says, pay attention to the word like a lamp shining in a dark place. Pay attention. Church, even though you're in tension with the already and the not yet, hold on. Pay attention to the lamp, the light of Jesus Christ. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Although the darkness does seek to carry us away, doesn't it? Seeks to, to rob us of our joy rob us of our standing, of our identity, uh, carry us away, Paul says in Colossians 2. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Oh, church, be careful. Oh, church, be on guard. Watch out. See to it that no one tries to rob you, carry you away. And so there are ideologies in the world, forces of darkness, uh, ideas and man's ideas of systems and philosophies, how the world works, where the world is headed. Uh, ideologies like critical race theory and really with, with a push like CRT, seeking to turn man from finding his identity in Jesus Christ, but to push him to find his identity in his skin color or to find his identity in a struggle against guilt and grievance. Or that man would, would not find his purpose in the Great Commission. Running through this, this land with the truth. Making disciples. How beautiful are the feet of those that bring good news. Not, not, don't find your purpose in that. Find your purpose in, in anti-racism. You know, don't, don't find your purpose in, in helping to bring unity. But use your energy to, to, to fuel further division. Use your energy not for reform. You know, re re reform back to God. But no, use your energy for revolt away from God. It would be wise to it. These ideologies, these philosophies uh, said uh, that CRT, critical theory, uh, is an ideology known for stirring up revolt by deconstructing and dismantling worldviews. That's, that's what it's about. Uh, Neil Shinvey has written a lot about uh, CRT, his website, Apologetics. Um, he says, contemporary critical theory views reality through the lens of power, 
dividing people into oppressed groups and oppressor groups along various axes like race, class, gender, sexuality, sexuality, orientation, physical ability, and age. Um, so that's, you know, just a window into what, what is CRT. And, you know, as we've, we've read a lot, no doubt, heard a lot, um, a lot going on with, with critical race theory, and even some saying, well, we believe in common grace, right? We believe in, in common grace, and, and no doubt we do, that, that God is restraining evil. He's restraining evil and that all, all men are created in his image, and therefore all men have God's fingerprints all over their soul and their heart, right? God is at work, but uh, Van Til, he says, any philosophy of history, men seek to systemize the facts of history. He says the believer and the non-believer differ at the outset of every self-conscious investigation. That's what you and I need to remember. We're weighing ideologies of man and, and non-believers. And what Van Til is saying is, is that for us as believers, we begin and end with God. He is our Alpha and our Omega. We begin and end with Him. But for, for the non-believers, Scripture teaches us, and we even reflect back to our pre-conversion, you know, we... The unbeliever seeks to suppress the truth. The, the, the non-believer has, has sought to arrange history to his liking, following his own desires. His, his belly is his God. And the non-believer is exchanging the truth of God for a lie. So, so in this, in this rejection of how to look at history, how to look at truth, uh, to reject God and idolatry, pursue idolatry, in this, Bavink, he says, in every direction, there's a call to search for a new religion, a new dogma, a new morality, a new science, a new art, a new marriage, a new criminal law, a new society. There's this, this search. Um, and by the critics, right? Everybody's met a critic. Those of you that, that have kids, you might recognize that food critic from Ratatouille. Um, it's a great story, but even in this story, the critic, he's won over. I think that speaks to us as Christians. We want to win over our critics. We want to bring them to the truth. Uh, what does a critic do? A critic has an agenda. His agenda is to pick and pick apart. The agenda is to try to disrupt, to turn the direction, and really with the critic to, to use their cynicism and just, just try to wear down, wear you down and beat you down and that, in hopes that they can bring you to a new set of convictions, values, and goals. That's what a critic does. And so we, we think of critical race theory uh, stemming from critical theories, uh, critical theories developed by students of Karl Marx, and how Karl Marx was you know, wrestling with the world, trying to discern uh, you know, the, the tensions of, of life and suffering and you know, this desire to be liberated from oppression. How can society be free? Uh, from all its troubles. You know, as Christians, we're, we're all about liberation, aren't we? We're all about setting the captives free. We're, we're against oppression. But let's, let's, let's look at that, though. Does your, is your ideology saying that you need to be liberated from God? And that's where these ideas are, are leading, ultimately, away from the authority of God, away from objective truth, and leading to advance... Uh, narratives for social transformation. That's the aim. You know, Marx, he hated religion. He, he, he saw that religion got in the way 
uh, that, that men were taught about another world. So therefore, men would put their, their trust and hope in another world to come. And Mark said, no, your identity is in this world and your place in society, your place in the class. You need to fight. It's here. It's right now. Um, religion got in the way. And his, his buddy Ingalls, uh, they, they once asked him, you know, who he hated the most. And he said he hated Charles Spurgeon the most. So you think about these guys, Marx and Ingalls, and they hated Spurgeon. Why? Well, because Marx and Ingalls were trying, they were trying to push society for a cultural revolution. What was Spurgeon calling for? Gospel transformation. Give your heart to Jesus. Follow him and serve him in the world. Fight against sin uh, and the devil and the flesh. So that's what critics do, this, this cynicism, and we all can relate to it. Uh, we all can relate to, to being frustrated, hurt, and, and, and in that hurt leading to bitterness. Uh, we're reminded of, of Absalom. Remember Absalom and how he was hurt. He was so angry at his father for not disciplining his brother Amnon as he violated their sister Tamar. He was so hurt, he was so angry, and he was bitter. Cynicism. And so what did Absalom do? He went to the gate every day. What did he tell those that came to the date looking to be heard? He said, there's no man to hear you. There's no man to hear you. This isn't going anywhere for you. And as the story goes, the conspiracy grew. Built up a following. Even the hearts of men, the hearts of, of the men of Israel, they went after Absalom. So we think about that's what cynicism does. That's where it goes to, to turn, to disrupt to turn around and coming to critical race theory, uh, CRT, uh, one of the founders, Derek Bell, a uh, lawyer with Harvard Law, beginning with Harvard Law, and as he was frustrated, he was frustrated about the seemingly slow progress of the civil rights movement. Uh, he had a broken heart. He was angry. He was suffering. He was struggling. You know, you think about what are you going to do with the world if you don't have the gospel? How, you, how are you going to deal with it? How are you going to deal with the tension? Um, in a lot of his writings, he, he, he put forward his views. In one, one writing especially, uh, he, he compared the, the, the plight of African Americans uh, in this country to Bluebeard's Castle. Uh, Bluebeard's Castle is a French fairy tale. and It was, a, it was about Bluebeard, and he was this oppressive, nasty guy, and he used to seduce women into his castle. And uh, the... You know, the people kind of wonder, whatever happened to these women? And, you know, and then one day this, this lady, Judith, she kind of gets into a wind of Bluebeard's offer for love. Come to his castle, come be his wife. And she goes into the castle. And what does she see? She sees this long hallway with these shut doors. And it's dark, it's damp, it's depressing. But she's like, Bluebeard, open up some of these doors. Let's shine some light. I need to know what you're about. Where is this relationship going? And as every door was opened by Bluebeard, it just led to more discouragement, more depression, more fear. And then finally, the, Bluebeard opens the last door. And what, what do they find? They find all of his former wives hidden away. And then Judith, she marries him and he hides her away. And so Bell, he uses that as a metaphor for the plight of the African-American in America. It's just it's one disappointment after another. It's just one long hallway to your demise. Uh, Delgado, he references his teacher who said the fate of a people, uh, African-American 
people who fail to grasp their situation or who listen to dreamers who tell them that salvation lies just around the corner. That's the, that's the plight. Um, that's where things are headed. Bell, he said, black people will never gain full equality in this country. Even those Herculean efforts we hail as successful will produce no more than temporary peaks of progress, short-lived victories that slide into irrelevance as racial patterns adapt in, this, in, the, in ways that maintain white dominance. This is a hard-to-accept fact that all history verifies. And Delgado goes on to say that many critical race theorists and social scientists hold that racism is pervasive, systemic, and deeply ingrained. He says, if we take this perspective, then no white member of society seems quite so innocent. So these, these views are coming out. This is, this is where despair and cynicism lead. Um, uh, recently at uh, PCA Coral Ridge, Pastor Rob had uh, Pastor Vody Bauckham. They did a Q&A about critical race theory. Here's some uh, comments about CRT from uh, Vody Bauckham. Um, components of critical race theory. They, there's four. One, racism is normal. Um, it's the usual way society does business. The common everyday experiences of most people of color in this country. Right? If you remember the Lego movie, if you had kids who watched the Lego movie for days, you were sitting there, everything is awesome, everything, right? Um, for CRT, everything is racist, right? Everything is racist. Everything is racist. Robin D'Angelo puts it this way. It, it, we don't have to ask whether or not racism was manifested in that circumstance, but how. Everything is racist. That's critical race theory. Everything is racist. Number two is, is this idea of convergence theory. This means that white people are incapable of righteous actions on race and only undo racism when it benefits them. That's critical race theory. White people are incapable of righteous actions on race and anything that they do that, that, that undoes racism, it's because it benefits them not people of color. I encourage you to, to listen to the rest of that, uh, that session, that conference they held. This is Robin D'Angelo, uh, the best-selling author of White Fragility. Uh, it's a very popular book and no doubt even popular in some churches uh, teaching, um, teaching this. This is what she says about a new definition of racism. We have to change our understanding of racism from an individual moment that may or may not have occurred to the system we're in and that is circulating 24-7, 365. And that changes the question from is or isn't he or she racist to how is racism manifesting in this context? So we get a, a window into the, the views and the ideologies. Um, these are some core tenets uh, of CRT. And we think about headwaters with a, with a river as being a source and how that river flows. And, and some people today, you might hear, they, they say, yeah, I'm a critical race theorist. I believe in, in CRT. I, I teach it. I promote it. And then some people, they might push back and say, I'm not a, I'm not a critical race theorist. I'm, I'm not a lawyer. Uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't practice those. That's for lawyers. This is what I do. I teach. I'm a motivational speaker. I'm a pastor. Well, those kind of things. But these are the, the headwaters. And you think about headwaters. These are the, the main ideas that are, that are being pushed out. Pushed out into communities, being taught. And as we heard Vody, he talked about the, that racism is normal. 
teaches it's incurable. Uh, the second point coined by Derek Bell, interest convergence, which teaches that, that if there's any progress in civil rights or, or unity or reconciliation, it's always done with the motive to benefit white people. Interest convergence, it always benefits whites. Thirdly, uh, the tenant uh, to question the foundation of order, law, and society. Uh, I think we've seen this uh, recently with the Black Lives Matter. We hear that and we say, amen, Black Lives Matter. Black lives are, are precious to God and to us. And, and we, we, we hear that and then we, we learn a little bit more. Well, there was actually, there's actually an agenda with that movement. There's an agenda. There's a questioning of the foundation of order. Uh, let's, let's question the foundation of the family, right? Let's question the, the, the foundation of, of government. Let's question the foundation of, of laws. And there are things, yeah, we want to check. We want to be discerning. Um, we know that, that sin exists and men who are in power are sinners and those things happen. But, but with CRT comes this questioning of that. Hey, let's defund the police. You know, we're, we're talking about Black Lives Matter, but then also we're, talk, also we're talking about, you know, gender rights, transgender rights, et cetera, and just kind of keeps going. Um, and then lastly, the, the, the tenet that knowledge is socially, socially constructed by oppressor for the purposes of oppression. I think how could you break that down? Well, you could break that down by saying, by asking ourselves, can we ever learn anything true from white people? Or can you, can you really be sure that, that you've learned anything true from a white Christian? Because they, they've been caught up in this system of, of white supremacy and white privilege and, and, and the, their, their oppressors and this idea that they're blind to what's going on. And only if you want to find out what's true or what's real, you need to listen to those who've experienced oppression. They're, they're awakened to what's really going on. They have a window into a lived experience. Um, and so it just kind of presses out down from the headwaters to, you know, let's deny objective truth. Well, it's, it's, it's what I say. It's, it's relative to me. It's, I, don't, I don't care really about facts or data. I just got this story, and I'm going to run with it. Um, tenets of, of uh, CRT. Um, and we, we are listening to those clips and even some of those definitions, and, and where we've probably been, we're thinking our, our minds swirl. Well, what is racism? What is it? What, what is let, let's nail that down. Let's, let's nail down some truth, some foundational biblical truth. And Kevin DeYoung is, is helpful here in his article, Thinking Theologically About Racial Tensions. He says racism is a sin, not just because of what it does to others, but because it is an offense to God and a transgression of the law of God. First John says sin is lawlessness, breaking the law of love, the law that calls us to love God and love our neighbor. Our, our catechism, what is, what is sin? It's any want or conformity to the law of God. So racism is sin. DeYoung says racism has become a notoriously difficult word to define. You've experienced that? And yet the, the biblical categories of enmity, pride, and partiality still work with a common sense definition. He says if you Google racism, the first definition comes from dictionary.com and reads prejudice, discrimination, or antagonism directed at a person or people on the basis of their membership of a particular racial or ethnic group, typically one that is a minority or marginalized. He says, I believe this is how most people use the word. And so there's this push to, to have a new definition of racism, a, a new lens to see it, a new understanding, uh, pushing us away from the, what the scriptures say about our heart, 
Sin is, is within us. It's not out, outside of us. Jesus is not what goes into the body that defiles us. It's what comes out of our heart. This pride in our heart, this malice in our heart, this, this prejudice. And it's expressed in partiality and, and, um, and malice and, and evil and harm. It's, it's in the heart. It's in action. It's in real history and time. You can discern it. You can repent of it. You can be forgiven of it. So we want to, want to come back to, to what's true, that some of these, this other lens of CRT pushing us away. So, so let's land with, with what's the telos of CRT? If we want to say, well, what's, what's the end goal? What's the purpose? Um, we can run it down the road, so to say, by, by, well, the purpose is a new identity. Identity and skin color and your group. That's where you find your purpose. That's where you find yourself. Totally antithetical to what Christianity says. No, we find our identity in Jesus Christ. There's no, no longer Jew, Gentile, male, female, Scythian, barbarian, slave or free, but one in Jesus Christ. It's your identity. CRT wants to push the new identity, and if, if you run that down the road, well, then you, if you hold on to that, then can you really truly belong to America? It's a white supremacist land. It's, it's driven by a white supremacist system. It's against you. And that, that leads to division. It's the, the end goal of division. No solidarity. It says there's, there's, there's nothing that connect, can connect whites with blacks. These two groups are totally separated. There, there's no solidarity. There's no, there's no unity. There's no unifying anything. You're, you're going to be an oppressor or an oppressed. No connection. Now that leads to bitterness. The end would be solely focused on grievance. And an idea that really sees future that's shaped by past failures. It's just that long hallway to that last room of your demise. No hope for you here. No hope. That's condemnation, isn't it? Condemnation, it pushes a penance for sin. There's no grace. There's no forgiveness. So what might be some of the solutions to CRT? You want to adopt that? You want to buy into that? Well... I think the extreme solution would be for this problem is a societal transformation. To have the, the victim class overturn the ruling class. That would be an extreme solution. Or reparations. Ibram Kendi says, you know, you say we're all created equal. We all need to be equal. Make us equal. And then ultimately, we're just going to be separate, se segregated. Not together, not working together, not living together, not worshiping together. Isn't that what Jesus prayed? I prayed that they would be one. Leading us to the vision of, of the throne, the throne room. Every tribe, nation, and tongue, worshiping the Lamb of God. It's totally antithetical to Christianity. And it's worked out. Uh, Jeffrey Powell, a lawyer writing for the Boston Law Journal, he says race crits or, or critics are politically ineffective because they deliberately choose racialist rhetoric that alienates whites. Unlike Dr. King, who extended his hand to whites and expressed his faith that they could redeem the promises of their ancestors. Race crits give up on whites as slaves to bigotry. Just give up. There's no hope. There's no hope. This, this world is dark. It's one, one big demise. It's hopeless. But beloved, we know that's not true. We know this is, this is a glorious day in history. This is a glorious time because the gospel's true. You know, G.K. Chesterton, he said, you know, this world can become beautiful again by beholding it as a battlefield. 
we have defined and isolated the evil thing, the colors come back into everything else. When evil things have become evil, good things in a blazing apocalypse become good. He says there are some men who are dreary because they do not believe in God, but there are many others who are dreary because they do not believe in the devil. May this world become beautiful again. To see the battlefield. To know that, that the serpent, the dragon has been conquered. We've triumphed. We've conquered through the blood of the lamb. But he still spews lies. Seeking to deceive. But history tells another story. Of, of, this, of this beauty. Of this beautiful battlefield. Of this work. That people aren't buying into CRT. Uh, Pyle, he says, no group in American history has had more reason to disbelieve America's promises than African Americans. He says, no group should be more amenable to the cynical separatism of the academic race crits. And yet, race crits are largely marginal among African Americans. Imbued with Christianity and the American creed, most black Americans rejected the appeals of socialists in the late 19th century, communists in the 1930s, and neo-Marxist liberationists in the 60s. Rather, when America's unpaid promissory note came, up, came due in the 1950s and 60s, they marched forth from Christian churches to demand fulfillment of the very American promise that all men are created equal. They're imbued with this, this hope Christianity and the promise of America. You remember when Dr. King on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial proclaiming that. We've come here to cash a check. Not come here to vilify America or condemn white people, but let's live out our obligations and let's do it together. That's the power of Christianity. Rejecting the lies. He says, in faith in the redeemably, redeemability of America's promises remain in the African-American community today. Amen. Sustaining efforts to overcome continued segregation, unjust incarceration, and enduring economic inequality. Thus, the more the race crits rail against the principles of liberal democracy, the further they separate themselves from the very people for whom they claim to speak. It hurts the very people you're aiming to serve. This is Bob Woodson talking about the harms. But a lot of the problems that we're facing today are the legacy of slavery. It's a shadow of slavery and Jim Crow. This is a defeatist uh, mentality. And as a consequence, it becomes an exemption. Nothing is more lethal than to convey to a people that they have an exemption from personal responsibility. Race grievance really is an exemption from personal responsibility. And 1619 is the culmination of that. And so the, the 1619 Project, uh, New York Times, Nicole Hannah-Jones, uh, that, you know, really saying that America's founding was not in 1776 with the declaring independence from Great Britain, the tyranny of King George, but, but really uh, America's founding, the birth of America was the entrance of African slaves in 1619, um, that America was founded to preserve slavery. That's the, the premise. Um, so you, so that, that, that leads us to, therefore, we can say that the core of America, America's heart is oppression and racism. Um, so this, this won a Pulitzer Prize. Uh, it's established a strong school curriculum being widespread. Uh, no doubt you've seen that in the news and the media, parents and school board meetings and all kinds of stuff going on. It's, it's a mess. But this is what, where it's going. Um, really a reframing of American history, uh, 1619. Um, and this is, a, this is a face of CRT. Is it's, it's a historical revisionism. 
as postmodernism. It's like, hey, we're going to just take this, this area, we're going to cherry pick this aspect of history, we're going to frame it to this end. Um, America was founded to preserve slavery. Well, what if, you know, we, we dig a little deeper, and historians have, and they've criticized the 1619 Project and come back and said, hey, you know, what about this? Listen to this. Well, did you know that early Africans imported to Virginia held status of indentured servant? That they, they, these, these men, they, they received freedom, freedom dues. They, they, they uh, owned land. They became prosperous, and they even ended up owning other Africans as servants, says a phoner. Or another historian, Ira Berlin, she says at least one man from every leading free black family in this time period around 1619, the Johnsons, the Paines, the Dragases, they married a white woman. Blacks and whites mingled freely together. Did you know that? Or as Wood says, indeed, nowhere on the planet in 1619 can one find an advanced society or civilization functioning without servitude and forms of prejudice and hierarchy. Uh, it's, uh, you know, the, the truce about slavery where the New York Times, they, they did publish a retraction. They said, well, we never meant it to be real history, but we just, we just want to say, what if? What if America was founded to preserve child slavery? What if? What if that? And you know, as, as Christians, we'll say, well, let's just tell the truth. Let's just tell the, let's, let's, let's tell the whole story. You know, let's tell the story about slavery in America. And how, how evil and horrendous um, it was. The evil upon Africans at the hands of white Europeans. How slavery in America was brutal. But the story of slavery is so much worse. So much worse. As uh, Thaddeus Williams, he cites the Global Slavery Index. Um, just some statistics about slavery. Uh, he says, did you know that a million Europeans were enslaved by North African pirates from the 16th to the 19th century? Or Europeans enslaved other Europeans, Asians enslaved other Asians, Africans enslaved other Africans. There were slave plantations in East Africa. Africans sold their fellow Africans to Europeans and Arabs. And keeping others for themselves, at the peak of the Atlantic slave trade, Africans retained more slaves for themselves than they sent to the Western Hemisphere. Or did we know that Brazil imported several times as many slaves as the U.S. and perhaps consumed more slaves than any other nation? Or what about today? Though illegal in every nation, today all skin tones across the world are suffering modern-day slavery. Over 40 million. So the 1619, with this emphasis on the crimes of America, the past of America, you know, what happened when they came to those shores, what was going on out across the ocean? Now, the truth, what Paul says, death is spread to all men. All men, there is no one righteous. But what has taken place in America, we need to tell that story. It's not all what, what, what's being promoted. As one historian says, uh, this aspect about America. Did you know two million black Africans have come to America as legal immigrants from countries like Nigeria in the last 50 years and have become one of the most successful groups in the country? Why would these folks move to what is often called an evil racist country? Because unlike many people lucky enough to be born here, they know that America is a land of opportunity for everyone. Hear this. Today, America is the most successful multiracial country in history. To compare, the historian says, to compare American attitudes about race today to America 100 years ago, let alone to 1619, is absurd. 
hear some words from Glenn Lowry. I think even as we prepare to you know, celebrate or not celebrate 4th of July, our families, our contacts, our communities, this is what Glenn Lowry says about the 1619 Project. And grassroots people in the communities where you're working, believing in the country, perhaps believing that it's an exceptional country, but perhaps believing that it basically is a good country. Okay? Absolutely. Worth serving, excuse me, worth fighting and dying for. I'm taking out of what you're saying. Okay? Black people are not to be taught to hate our country. Why don't we just say that, okay? We are not to be taught to hate our country. The fact of slavery, I'll say it for a third time, are not redound in the 21st century in the indoctrination of our children into an attitude toward their country of contempt, of skepticism, of disdain, of not belonging. That's a mistake. It's a profound political and moral error. It betrays our ancestors. I want to finish this. Teaching our children that America isn't worth loving and dying for betrays the sacrifices of our ancestors who fought and died for it and for our freedom. Do you? Amen. Amen. So definite pushback um, against 1619. Uh, Bob Woodson, with his, uh, his work, 1776 Unites, uh, professed Christian. He says he's addicted to optimism. And as Christians, how can we not be? Addicted to optimism. Uh, his mission, he says, we acknowledge racial discrimination exists. We seek to end it, but we reject the contemporary rhetoric about race, class, and American history that defames our nation, divides our heritage, divides our people, and instills helplessness. He says, we celebrate black excellence. We reject victimhood, and we showcase millions of black Americans who have prospered by embracing the founding ideals of America. These ideals, these virtues that are ingrained in our, our, our country, you know, there's a lot of talk about, well, racism is ingrained, but what about these, these inalienable rights, everyone created equal, these rights that God has given you, that the government does not give us, but God has given us, created in the image of God, you have blood pumping through your veins, go out and, and, and find life and live, find a purpose, uh, I think as we seek to minister to the lost and the poor in our context and invite them into the, to the church, what are we going to give them? What are we going to teach them? Virtue, right? Truth. What's true and, and good and beautiful? Uh, what about the tried and truths of, of Walter Williams, the late Walter Williams? He says, here's the roadmap out of poverty. Complete high school. Get a job. Any kind of a job. Get married before having children and be a law-abiding citizen. Among both black and white Americans, so described, the poverty rate is in the single digits. So taking hold of, of virtue and, and truth and seeking grace, seeking the Lord, seeking to follow the Lord, seeking to contribute to society. In our, our context where we, we minister, uh, Pleasant Hill, a historic African-American community in uh, Macon, Georgia. And uh, this is Charles Douglas. Uh, son of a former slave, son of Pleasant Hill. He uh, rose to be an iconic businessman. He built up the black community. That was his heart and his desire. He wanted to build up his neighbors. Isn't that what love does? Love builds up. Love doesn't keep a record of wrongs. Love, love is building up. And his, his heart for his community to build up in such a way that there was a, they said there was a mark on his head from the KKK trying to take him out. 
But here's, here's a response. How are you going to respond to, uh, to oppression? You're going to shrink back, shy away, run? No, you're going to stand and serve. Douglas did. Uh, founded the Douglas Theater, come to Macon, come and enjoy some music. Uh, he was the first African-American millionaire from Macon in 1921. Think about that. When racism is, is enshrined in law, here are those that are taking hold of virtues and principles and, and living. So as Christians, we, we want to push back from false narratives. Uh, CRT is, is not looking for any grace, healing, or progress. Um, as, as Christians, we're taught how to handle history, aren't we? We, we don't sugarcoat it. And we're also not doomed by it. We, the people of God, we've been given the books, right? The books of kings and chronicles. Kings given to the people of God to explain to the sons in exile, why are you in Babylon? We're in exile because of the sins of our fathers. They broke covenant with Yahweh. They broke covenant. We're being disciplined. This is why we are here. We're not going to sugarcoat it. It was ugly. About kings and, and, and Bathsheba. And what David did, and adultery and murder, or Manasseh, how he was the worst. So we don't sugarcoat history. We'll tell you what's going on. This is how we got here. But we're also given chronicles. A message to the sons in exile. To, to, yeah, the, the history was bleak. It was, it was horrible. It was ugly. But God is ready to forgive you. God is ready to forgive you. He is a God of grace and forgiveness. Will you seek him? Will you seek him? Would you be restored to him? You're not caught in this fatalistic doom. There is grace for you. Even though your history is bad and it's ugly, God is, is seeking you. He's calling you to himself. Think about Chronicles. There's no mention of Bathsheba and David. Like, hey, we, we don't need to bring that up right now. You know, yeah, there was a broken covenant, but, but God is, is bringing David's greater son, a righteous king. You look for him. You keep your eyes on him. You want to know what happened to Manasseh? It was horrible. Yeah, even in all his crimes of, of leading Israel astray, burning his sons, but how the Lord took him captive. And in his captivity, he prayed. And God was moved by his entreaty, heard his plea, brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. That's our lens for history, right? That's how we, that's how we handle That's how we walk through it. CRT's lens seeks to divide, offers no solidarity between white and black. 1619 seeks to silence whites and anger blacks. But, but beloved, as the church, let us remember the words of Paul. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. To everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. We have a high view of the means of grace, the power of God, the proclamation, the power of His Spirit. You know, some today are saying we need CRT to see the evil in the church. We need CRT to see the evil in the world. What did Paul say? He said God gave the law to increase the trespass. And where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. You finish that, that sentence, right? This is, this is how we see it. This is how we're called to respond. And, and also as, as Christians, some of us here in this room, we're called to be missionaries to North America. We need to know our story. We need to know the truth. We need to celebrate it. You know, this country where, where Frederick Douglass, you know, former slave abolitionist, he said this country with the founding ideals, the documents, it gives us a broad platform. There is enough room in this country in the way it was set up 
to support all types of men in flourishing. This is what, what we celebrate. This is what we run through the land proclaiming. There's a place for you. There's hope for you. Uh, today, as, as uh, Ibram Kendi wants to tell blacks, you're, you're stamped from the beginning. We tell you there, there is a stamp upon you. and It's a stamp of the image of God. And you are, you are full, worthy of all dignity, honor, destiny, love, respect. Come and, and find your, your purpose in serving Christ and worshiping. Let us worship together. There's a stamp, the stamp of the image of God. We're Robin D'Angelo. She says we're born in the waters of racism. We say there's another stream, the stream of salvation. That there is a fountain opened in Jerusalem for cleansing the blood of Jesus Christ. Or, you know, we say Jesus can conquer sin, death, the devil. Why not, why not racism? Why not white supremacy? Right? Hear the words of Jesus. I rebuke you, Satan. Is this not a brand I plucked from the fire? Bring him pure vestments. Give him the garments of salvation. Give him a new heart, a new spirit. He will live. He will live. This is how we respond to our neighbors whose hearts are breaking in the tension of the world, the suffering, the pain. Go to our neighbors with what Bobink says. We believe and do not despair. Sin does not break God's power, but brings it to a richer revelation. The world's plan presses on as a redemption plan. Although history shows us so much disorder and regress, it still moves towards Christ's future. God executes his counsel and according to his promise, we expect a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Hallelujah. Redemptive history. It's our message to our neighbors. That's what Paul says. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Amen. You can hear more talks like this by subscribing to the Gifts and Graces podcast. You can also hear more content like this by attending a seminar at General Assembly. They are free and open to the public. Find out times and locations by visiting pcaga.org. Thanks for listening to Gifts and Graces.